The Career Establishment's Talent Talk Asia podcast is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the all-in-one CRM for ambitious recruitment businesses. Founded by Asia-based recruiters back in 2012, over a thousand recruitment companies choose Vincere to accelerate their growth. Whether your business is contract, temp, executive search or perm, if you're looking for a new breed of tech partner, talk to Vincere. Visit vincere.com io forward slash talent talk asia for an exclusive offer for all listeners of this podcast hi i'm andrea ross your host and in this series we feature some of the most successful talents from across the region to discuss the forces opportunities and challenges that are shaping the corporate landscape if you're keen to be a guest on the show then please reach out Welcome to another Talent Talk Asia podcast episode. My ambition is a simple one, which is to share stories and insights from our guests that you may not have had the opportunity to hear, leaving you with monthly doses of motivation and inspiration. You will want to grab a pen and paper to take notes on this pod. Now, if you've just started listening to Talent Talk Asia, then it's worth heading to the beginning, where we've been interviewing guests since 2019, but you are in for a real treat. This podcast episode is very special to me. It's not every day that you get to hear a story of someone leading the first Singapore Mount Everest expedition, which he did in 1998. He's an author, he's a corporate coach, and he is a legend on the motivational speaker circuit. He is David Lim. He will share his journey from rowing at Cambridge University to moving into mountaineering that led him to to lead over 70 expeditions. Hear David's passionate and awe-inspiring story about resilience, teamwork, perseverance, and how suffering from a rare nerve disorder that same year taught him to focus on micro-challenges to survive, both physically and mentally. You're in for a real treat today. This is what we have in store for you today. Towards the end of the time in in, in London or in UK, I said to myself, you know, I'm not going to enjoy this kind of level of quality of rowing um, in Singapore. And you know, over there you have Olympians in your same club. You're walking next wow. to them, and so you learn a lot. Wow. And so I said, I got to find something else. So I went to the library, thinking I could buy a book on on rowing, feed the habit somehow. Then I found this book called The Shining Mountain. The Shining Mountain by Peter Boardman. Uh, he's he's, okay. he's long dead now. And I said, Oh, I'll read this. Sounds fun. I'll read this book and I'll toss it afterwards because it's fifty pence in a library sale. <laughs> I read it. I said, This is fantastic. I don't understand all the technical aspects, but this mountaineering sounds. Incredibly exciting, this technical mountaineering. So someone in my office was a kind of retired rock climber. So he said, I'll take you down to the Brixton Wall. Uh, and so we, we climbed there a bit. And then eventually I said, I want to do more of this. And eventually I spent uh, the whole of the winter of 1990 uh, skiing and climbing ice frozen waterfalls in, in Chamonix. Oh my God. In the French Alps. And wow. yeah, and then, so when I came back to Singapore, I was all fired up. Wow, I want to do more. I want to, now to, I want to learn how to do, be better at rock climbing and eventually do more alpinism. And that's how I started in Singapore. There's a, there was a very small community that's of, I was going to ask, of actually, rock, cli- of rock climbers, of rock climbers and alpinists. So I, I fell in with them basically, and that's how it started. How now, small was it at that point then? 
when you came back? Ooh, yeah, there's a group of maybe about 20 people every weekend in the in the rock in the rock quarries, the regular climbing, you know, 20, um, 30. Yeah, of course, it grew. By the time you get to the like early 90s, yeah, it's hundreds of people because most of them were doing competitive climbing on, right. on artificial rock climbing right. walls, you know? Yeah, which so obviously they're there. But now. the yeah. number of alpinists, the number of people who have wielded an ice axe on a hard piece of ice or snow, oh right? Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. That's it. That's even smaller. So you're going, you're going down to maybe like about a dozen to, you know, or fewer people that. And that's how I started, really. And eventually, one thing led to another. I went abroad for climbs in the Alps. And, you know, by a couple of years after that, I realized that it's ready to see whether a group of people can come together and train up and go and climb Everest. Enjoy the show. Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine, Andrea, and you are great. I am. I am feeling good. Yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Really excited. Well, I'm looking forward to this. All right. So I'm really keen to kind of start off in your early life, and then we're going to go all the way through the amazing accomplishments that you've done in your life. But let's go. <laughs> let's go back. Let's go way back. So before we get stuck in, I want to get to know how you got where you were. So to, you know, tell me a little bit more about your childhood in Singapore. What was it like? Gosh, well, I wasn't born in Singapore, right? I was oh. born further up north in Malaysia. Okay. All right. So I was born in a typical suburban, you know, middle class type family. Both my parents were like kind of like teachers or lecturers and that's then that's where I grew up and I what about in Malaysia then was it I was a suburban kid I, lived, I grew up in Petaling Jaya which is like a suburb of Kuala Lumpur so yes yes I know it I know yeah. it well yeah and do you <laughs> do you kind of miss the life in Malaysia uh I think it depends I think the life there is good if you don't have to do certain I think if you have to run a business or something like that. It could be a bit challenging, yeah, uh, in terms of the current political, social, economic setup that is over there. I think Malaysia is quite a good place to retire in, you know, cost of living, the weather, <laughs> the food, all is all excellent, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and but, is that something you might do in the future? Is that kind of on yeah, the plan, or well, is it well, still Singapore? Talk, yeah, we have talked about it, kind of thing. I said, yeah, there's a possibility, you know. But I mean, all my social equity and capital is in Singapore, you know, friends, networks, connections. So I think as long as I'm like kind of like semi-retired, still doing some business, I think Singapore will still be home. And when did you move over to Singapore then? Ah, uh, when I was like about, goodness, when I was about 13 or 14 years old. Okay, so you were educated here then. This Was that sort of a big yeah, driver from, from, on why yeah, you... from middle secondary all the way up. And then, uh, and then I spent like seven, seven years in, in, the, in the UK. You did. And, and I'm going to, I'm just about to get there on that one. <laughs> so, so you moved to the UK to study law at Cambridge. That's right. And was that something that was always kind of a family dream or um, were you kind of, I don't know, were you forced into it? I know there's always a lot of pressure on medicine yeah, and yeah, law. Yeah, and there was a couple of options there. I could have gone and done an, an English literature kind of based degree. And that was where I was. I was very interested in that oh, too. Oh, were you? But right. in the end, you know, typical Asian parents is, you know, hey, we're going, we're going to fuck out all this money to send you there. <laughs> you better study something that's practical. You yeah. know? So I said, hmm, law's not too bad by the sounds of it. So I went to, to read law at Cambridge. At Cambridge, yeah. Yes. Not just some average universities then. You had to go to the best one. Uh, yeah, so unfortunately, the college I went to Maudlin. It was actually interesting. At that time, it was near the bottom of the academic tables for four years. <laughs> wow, I said, very consistent, Very consistent. <laughs> but, but the main reason why I went there too was because uh, two or three of the dons there in the law faculty were actually uh, a national level uh, jurists, in the sense that they were consulted on on national level legal issues, 
on matters. The, one, of the, one of the Don's day was, uh, was uh, Michael Dyer. He wrote the definitive book on torts, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Christopher Greenwood, now Sir Christopher Greenwood, was, the, was one of the two, only two, I think, uh, in international lawyers in the whole of the UK at that time. So again, mm, it was a good place to actually be there if you wanted to. Did to you enjoy your law. time there? I mean, it must have been a bit of a transition from Singapore um, to, to the UK I mean, how was that for I, th you? I think the biggest transition that you think you're even a reasonably good student and I was by no way an AA plus a double A plus student I don't believe it for a second uh, no no I wasn't I was, I was I just managed to score the right A's in the right places <laughs> oh right oh I like that nicely put <laughs> yeah, that's right and, and, <laughs> yes exactly and, uh, and uh, you know um, I think the biggest change going there is realising that instead of being a biggish fish in a smallish pond you're not a minnow in a gigantic ocean yeah. there right yeah uh, and people that you, the, the people that you think will reasonably high standard doing something, you know, suddenly that you know, like you realize that oh my goodness, and there are others which are like. You know, I'm giving an example. I used to like enjoy doing long distance running okay. and cross country, for example. And my time was not again brilliant. A plus, I wasn't a very fast runner, but I was a decent college level student. And then you go there, and like the fastest guy in your college, not even your university, in the college, would be a Southeast Asian Games, the gold medalist oh, gosh. in that distance. Right. You know, right. It's a little bit more competitive. Exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of distance. And you suddenly realize some of the, the big people who play rugby, not that you play rugby, I never played rugby, uh, they eventually became people like Gavin Hastings. Oh, you know, wow. British okay. exactly. So he was my contemporary. He was okay. my contemporary. He was the same time as that. So Chris Otti, the great yes. England winger, he was there too. So can you imagine if you're playing college-level sport, but you have these guys on your team or yeah. maybe you're against them, right? It's I mean, kind of intimidating. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, what did you so what kind of things did you have to do to kind of stand out or did you not take that route and just kind of you know, did other things to... Well, you know, you can stand out in many ways. And I think that most Singaporeans who went there just put their noses in their books and focus on getting a double first right. class honours and, right. and left. And I realised that Cambridge has so many things offered. It was so rich in many things. I decided, well, you know, I'd rather get a, I'd rather get a, a lower second or, you know, or something like that rather than spend all my time studying because there's, so there's so many things that the university could afford in terms of the social life and so on. So yeah, eventually I did. I had a very, very active social life. You know, I I rode competitively in the college. I captained the cross country team in my final year. Yeah, interesting. Although I think I was probably the slowest <laughs> in the whole team. It's all about teamwork. It's not all just about that one person. But you know, interestingly, on the one year that we were going to uh, competing for the honors of the top team in Cambridge, right? Uh, the gap between us and the second team was like about one point. And, and and anybody who finishes, doesn't matter what time, gives that team one point. So when I crossed the finish line on, on, on the final race of the season, they all came around me and said, David, I have to ask you this, but were you last? I said, yes, I think I was the last one to cross the line. You know, realize something, you could be the most important person on this team. I said, why? And then later I found out why. Because the gap between winning the first place and the second was one point. Oh, right. Got it. <laughs> Interesting. So if I had not turned up, if I had not finished, you know, they wouldn't have had a point. So. And, during, and during university, did you decide, did you want to stay a little bit longer or did you come straight back? What was the no, kind no, of... No, I no, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to stay on. I wanted to stay on. So I went to London. I did uh, the uh, solicitor's finals exams. Right which is the professional exams you do if you want to be a practicing solicitor. Mm. And I think at that time, I was still in love with the idea of becoming an international lawyer. Of course, by that time, I already had accepted an offer from Norton Rose, one of the, like, the oh, big yes, global firms. Rose, yeah. and, and I think I was still in love with the idea of being an international lawyer. But unfortunately, when it came to 
being one or doing what it took to be one, I realized that I did not like studying the law to become a lawyer. I enjoyed studying the law as an academic yeah, subject, yeah. but I just was not cut out to study the law to be a practicing lawyer. So the theory so, behind yeah. it fascinated you, but yeah. not necessarily actually so, doing it. Why, why was that? Uh, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was, it was the procedures. I'm not a high procedures person. I'm more of a big picture person. Okay. Uh, and then I failed my exams in London spectacularly. You know, um. spectacularly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So that took me out for a year. In which time, you know, I I it, I did some part time jobs to 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 pay for the rent, and I, I retook the exams, and I still did not pass the minimum right. number of papers. So, so sometimes your passion was there. Yeah. yeah. So I, it was a very difficult time transitioning for me emotionally, and it was like it was like killing this idea of being. An international lawyer, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Mm. So what happened? Talk me through you. When did you come back? What did you end up doing in your first role? Well, you know, well, I, I, I took some jobs. In fact, I eventually worked for the Solicitors Investigations Bureau at that time, believe it or not, in London for a couple of years. Okay. And then I realized at some stage that my time was up in England and I, I came back to Singapore. Why was that? What was the trigger um, for you to want to come back home? You know, I just thought that, you know, I'd been there for so many years. I think it was actually very difficult for me to extend and get a work permit to do the stuff that I wanted to do. So I decided, you know, well, once this like once the time for me is up, you know, I won't try and apply for a work permit. It's just too many hurdles to go over. So I returned to Singapore. And then I joined uh, the largest media firm that's here, SPH. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there and it was there for about nine or ten years. So what were you doing there for the nine to ten years? Actually I I was there rotated between publishing, publishing, um, marketing, sales marketing. And uh, the information technology development, which was okay. kind of fun and involved me like playing computer games for weeks and weeks. Sounds fantastic. And I finally went to my boss and said, so, so, so what do you think? Do you think it's possible for us to have online, online game? I said, I said, no boss, you know, the bandwidth is still too slow. All right. So that was it. So it was a wonderful, like a one paragraph summary of six weeks of computer gaming. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an and, ideal and, dream job for yeah. most people, and doesn't you, it? And of course, during that time too, I was actually already like working on the Singapore Everest expedition. So this, yeah, this is what I'm so excited to talk to you about. So for, for, for 21 years, you worked as a chief motivation officer for South Coal Adventures. So actually, it's actually Everest Motivation Team, more like it. It's so, Everest yeah, motivation, motivation Team. team. Okay. South Coal Adventures was my vehicle for when I was a professional mountaineer for organized treks and climbs and things like Got that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that about the Everest um, team and you know well you know the thing the strange thing about it is people ask me how do you get into climbing and I often tell them this I know this sounds corny but I read a book that changed my life really not, not many people can say that but I did so what happened was before I left London and by that time I was a competitive rower for seven years okay. so I was racing competitive on the Thames we were driving to other places during mm, the summer beautiful. seasons mm. wonderful it was some of the best years of my life basically you know it's great camaraderie great people uh, beautiful scenery beautiful I would scenery mm. yeah, it was really I felt very privileged I was like I think I was like the only other Asian who was actually doing any kind of competitive racing or even, even had my own boat single sculling boat one of those you know needle shaped wooden yeah, single sculling beautiful, boat beautiful yeah, I, I, I even painted this name on the site it was called the Singapore Sling oh I <laughs> love it you see, have you got a picture of that yeah not here but yeah I have oh you've got to dig that I've out for me I've got a picture me. of that yeah how did it, can I just can I just mm. ask a question like, how did it feel 
to sort of be the only Asian, you know, competing competitively? Did you feel isolated? Did you feel proud? Like, what were your kind of feelings uh, when actually, you think back was, on that now? it was quite tough, you know. It was quite tough because you're often the smallest person on the boat. Right. So you've got to constantly fight to earn your place. That means you've got to punch above your weight. Yeah. You've got to show you, you make the biggest, the bigger puddle in the water when right. you pull your blade through right. it kind of thing. Mm. Right. So it's a bit harder than people who come naturally gifted. Hey, you know, like I'm in 13 stone already. <laughs> and how, I'm also keen, I mean, in England, there's a, you know, to sort of survive any team environment in England, you really do kind of have to have that English banter, as we call it. You know, that, yeah, that sends you... I mean, I mean, was that I, something you slotted into easily? Yes. Did you learn I, to kind of I, I, navigate I, around? I, I ran into that by the time I got to my second year at university. Right. So by the time I got to London, it was quite, you know, I had what I call assimilated quite right, right. naturally in that sense. Okay. Um, okay. Some, so I know that some, I know that some people don't and maybe mm. they don't want to. That could be another reason. But yeah. I wanted to because life is too short to miss out on a lot of things and you do miss out if you don't you for example don't allow people to take the mickey out of you for example and that's, a, that's a very British <laughs> which thing which is very right? absolutely it, very, it, it, yeah. it is the, the British have a yeah. way of scorning people who take themselves too seriously yes yeah. Yeah. so things like you, you know, can't allow, be precious uh, you really uh, can't be too precious uh, yeah exactly so so those are fantastic and towards the end of the time in, in, in London or in UK I said to myself you know I'm not going to enjoy this kind of level of quality of rowing um, in Singapore and you know, over there you have Olympians in your same club. You're walking next wow. to them, and so you learn a lot. Wow. You know? And so I said, I got to find something else. So I went to the library thinking I could buy a book on on rowing, feed the habit somehow. Then I found this book called The Shining Mountain. The Shining Mountain by Peter Boardman. Uh, he's he's, okay. he's long dead now. And I said, oh, I'll read this. Sounds fun. I'll read this book and I'll toss it afterwards because it's fifty pence in a library sale. <laughs> I read and I said, this is fantastic. I don't understand all the technical aspects, but this mountaineering sounds. Incredibly exciting. It's technical mountaineering. So someone in my office was a kind of retired rock climber. So he said, I'll take you down to the Brixton wall. Uh, and so we, we climbed there a bit. And then eventually I said, I want to do more of this. And eventually I spent uh, the whole of the winter of 1990 uh, skiing and climbing ice frozen waterfalls in, in Chamonix. Oh my God. In the French Alps. And wow. yeah. And that, so when I came back to Singapore, I was all fired up. Wow, I want to do more. I want to, now to, I want to learn how to do, be better at rock climbing and eventually do more alpinism. And that's how I started in Singapore. There's a, there was a very small community of rock climbers and alpinists. So I, I fell in with them basically, and that's how it started. How now, small was it at that point then? When you came back, Ooh, that group. Yeah, there's a group, maybe about twenty people every weekend in the in the rock in the rock quarries, the regular climbing. You know, twenty um, thirty. Of course, it grew. By the time you get to the like early nineties, yeah, it's hundreds of people because most of them were doing competitive climbing on, right. on artificial rock climbing right. walls. You know, yeah, which so is obviously there. there but now, the yeah. number of alpinists, the number of people who have wielded an ice axe on a hard piece of ice or snow, oh my right? Gosh, I can't even that's imagine. It, that's even smaller. So you're going, you're going down to maybe like about a dozen to you know, or fewer people that. And that's how I started, really. And eventually, one thing led to another. I went abroad for climbs in the Alps. And, you know, by a couple of years after that, I realized that it's ready to see whether a group of people can come together and train up and go and climb Everest. See, that was... Wow. And what... Um Instead of just doing it, is it is it a climb uh, where you can do that on your own, or is, or do you tend to always need to be in a team to achieve that? It, uh, it's incredibly helpful to be in a team, unless you're one of these like world class type, you know, climbers who wants right. to climb it kind of solo or unassisted. But generally, expedition style climbing, yeah, you definitely need a kind of team because okay. certain certain aspects of the climb require more than just one person for the safety aspect of okay. it. Okay. My favorite combination is two persons. Some people think that, oh, that's a bit too few, actually. But my favorite combination is two persons on the mountain, big or Why small. Uh, all decisions are unanimous. Mm. Uh, 
did the your your peer has got to be at the same climbing level as you or mm-hmm. better? One is you know is be that you can't have a you can't have too wide a gap of climbing skill. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then that's that's the kind of setup. But it's very there's so many different styles of climbing. I think that's beyond the scope of this podcast. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I, but, but but I think it's a it's a topic that not everyone's well not many people have been exposed to. So I think it's yes. really interesting to kind of know your experience when you first started mountaineering, where it wasn't just on a you know, where you were, as you say, sort of using the pick. How, what, describe the feelings around that. Like, what were you kind of, what was it that kind of got you really excited about it, you know, from book to actually doing yeah. it? It's being in a kind of a separate reality. I mean, first of all, it is about you allowing yourself to push yourself to your mental and your physical limits. Second, is it being in a separate reality? Is it being, say, on a high alpine ridge when the sun is just breaking over the horizon and the views that you get? You feel very privileged when you're, if you've got yourself in that kind of position. And of course, all this, this constant thought that, you know, wow, I could die <laughs> if this thing hit me or yeah. if this thing happened or this thing broke under my feet kind of thing. So this is your, the, the fact that you've, you're in, often in a clear and present danger heightens the, all your senses quite significantly. And that itself is a very unusual sensation. Yes, uh, I, I can I, imagine. I, I, would, I would say that, yeah. So I know that, I've got other questions on that, but I'm not going to be able to find that and listen to that at the same time. So I may well ask you a question that kind of relates to that in a yes. second. But um, when you're sort of doing that climb, is there anything else other than climbing that comes to mind that when you're up there, or is it just that you, you are just there in that moment? I mean, I'm, you know, do you think about the family? Do you think about, you know, gosh, I'm in that situation of possibly... Um, not say death, but your sort of mortality. Does it come into play? Do you think about that in terms of the family, you know, your wife? And I mean, usually if you're sitting in that, you're sitting at, in a camp or base camp and it's safe, you know, yeah, these thoughts come to your mind. But when you are in what I call a rather grippy, grippy situation, when you're kind of gripped on a particular section of a climb, you're not thinking that at all. You're thinking about mm-hmm. how do I like overcome this obstacle? How do I get from A to B? How do I get past this rock? ban or something like that and the more you're focused on it the safer it is for you because then you focus completely on completing the climb in a swift and efficient manner as possible and did you know you had the skills of that level of focus before you started mountaineering i know you you know you did the the rowing is that the same level of skill or in terms of focus or is that different over a long period i would say yes because it still requires a lot of the basic things that competitive sports demand of your focus motivation discipline being a self-starter ability to take uh, to tolerate moderate amounts of pain and discomfort for protracted periods of yeah. time yeah. yeah so that's what mountaineering is in a sense right? ability to absorb and to adapt to large amounts of discomfort and pain for long periods of time basically so how did you know yeah. that you could actually do that though well don't forget i came from a background of long distance running like marathon running so you used to your toenails <laughs> falling off and <laughs> no. soreness everywhere yeah, and- no, not as bad as that but again you know you at least you understood what it's like to push yourself to a right. certain limit you know um and obviously mountaineering combines just on the physical mental fitness uh application of skills on rock ice and snow and it's often at high altitude as well so so that that makes the whole mental side of the game also very interesting in a sense if you're if you're yeah if you're you're familiar with mihaly csikszentmihalyi's book called flow flow f-l-o-w flow he's he studied he studied the area of, of, of the psyche where you know, when you're so engaged in something right. that 
Did that two hours feels like 20 minutes? Yes, I'd learn it you, more yeah. from a Clifton Strengths perspective. When you're in the flow, it goes like that because yes. you're passionate so, so about it. So he wrote an entire book on it, which has been a, right. one of the classics of the whole uh, world psychology. Right. And then he described, and climbing is very much like that. You're, okay. in, you're involved, you're involved in a, in a non-repetitive activity that's extremely absorbing from right. a psychological right. and emotional basis. Like diving. Mm. Yeah. And then, mm. and then basically when that happens, time begins to bend in some ways. Right. And the, 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 the two hours felt like, you know, it felt, it felt like two hours actually went by 20 minutes. So the, the, the time changes basically, you know. That's really fascinating. It is. Uh, the, the concept of flow. Yeah. Uh, people who get into that are people obviously like long distance runners, ultra marathoners. Yeah. Once in the state yeah. of flow, eh? time goes. And climbing is very similar to that. Have you ever you been able to find anything? I know you went from rowing to mountaineering. Mm. And what has there been any other substitutes to that in your life after mountain? Not saying after mountaineering, but is there anything else that you would say that would be the same? You're pointing at your for the <laughs> listeners out there. Um, David is pointing to his skis. <laughs> uh, yes, in in that sense that uh, I'm not saying that my mountaineering days are over, but over mm-hmm. the last obviously the five ten years, it's slow. That means I'm not going on two expeditions a year, mm. not even one. In fact, my last Himalayan expedition was five years ago. Right. But what's happened is that my focus has now shifted in that sense. We've, you know, we've had a little detour. I've returned to what I was my first experience of the mountains, which was skiing. Of right. course, when you're busy having right. a nine to five kind of job and work mm. and you're taking leave for mountaineering, it doesn't leave much time for skiing. But now I realize that you know, after I returned to, the, to skis in, uh, in six, seven years ago, I said, after I spent a, a one week doing it, I said, oh my goodness, I said to myself, this is so much fun, you know. Why did I give it up in the first yeah. place? And yeah. then now I'm returning to it, obviously, with my physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to go on a huge learning curve because obviously my interest also lies in ski mountaineering mm. and getting good enough to get to that level. Mm. Uh, and that requires a whole spectrum of new skills and equipment that is completely different from your usual ski resort type of equipment. Oh, right. Okay. In terms of the bindings, the ski equipment, the, the, the techniques as well. See, I uh, think there's something about you when you're saying, because you can't just go on a skiing holiday, can you? That You, it ha- <laughs> you can't just go, let's just, you know, grab skis when we get there. Yeah. We'll just have a, you know, a week holiday. It seems that the, the, there seems to be these extremes that you push yourself, that you yeah, compete. You've got to find, so you got to find something there. You know, And obviously with my disability, that came the second interesting uh research or, or sporting challenge you know how do we ski uh, without necessarily doing what you call ski, adaptive skiing you know where you know people who do sit skiing you've yes, seen that quite yes a, uh, people who ski with outriggers like crutches with little short paddles at either end so i'm trying very hard to achieve what i want to achieve without needing that kind of equipment okay okay so that's proving a very interesting uh, educational journey for me over the last four years <laughs> that, that does, and, and, and i imagine whatever you learn would be quite nice to share with others that may be also going through the same thing as well uh, indeed but they're very 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 few of us <laughs> yes there are very few of you i'm really keen to move towards really discovering more about your climb now in 1998 you led the first ever Singapore expedition to Mount Everest which for those that aren't so familiar that listening to um, the podcast you know it's located in the Himalayan belt Mount Everest's peak sits at an altitude of roughly 8.8 kilometers Um, now being the first in Singapore where did you look for your role models to kind of dream so big yeah, that's interesting, actually. Um, and obviously, there's lots of books of historical climbs on Everest, some not mm. that long ago, if you think about mm-hmm. it here. And eventually, as this project 
begin to move into his first, second, and third year, you know, besides the the day to day struggle of you know having a job, as well as organizing this climb, was all the meetings with sponsors, getting umpteen rejections. So I have a lot of great rejection story to tell you about that one. Yeah, because nobody yeah. took us seriously. And, and you, cause, of course, it's not televised. Nobody really wants to give, put any money towards yeah. this. And of course, on yeah. your team, you have a mechanic, a couple of school teachers, not exactly well-connected and wealthy individuals. Yeah. And all had day jobs yeah. as well, actually. So I think that was a, was a huge struggle for the three and a half years to get the nearly $1 million to put this show was on the road. how much it was? Because there was all wow. the train. There was a, at least, you know, like about a bunch of expeditions to build up to Everest. You know? yes, we just didn't course. turn up for Everest. Right. And so that was a huge uh, a challenge of focusing on on the strategy of getting the money to go, getting the training to prepare ourselves beyond the basics to go to Mount Everest. Because we really didn't want just to get skills to go to Mount Everest. We wanted to be better than that. We wanted to get, have more than the minimal skills through the climbs we did before Everest. So when we got to Everest, we'd have like more than just the minimal you know, like, like what a lot of people are doing now, they're going to Everest to try to climb Everest. Some do succeed, but they do it with a bare minimum amount of skill and experience. And we did not want to have that kind of situation. Oh, right. Okay, that's what people are doing now. But you, so, so what was involved in that preparation then to get you to the point that you could succeed well, at Well, it's identifying where the gaps were in terms of our, our skills and our experience. Of course, obviously one huge gap was uh, living at altitude, living, climbing uh, at altitude. So we knew we had to successively climb, climb successively higher mountains and at the same time, climb some smaller, maybe, but harder mountains for the skill aspect what of it. What mountains were they then that you were doing to build oh, up to I that? mean, the team, the team did a variety of training climbs in yeah. Nepal, Himalaya, in right. the New Zealand Alps, right. uh, in the Swiss Alps as well. That was in 96. And of course, uh, we did a 7,000-meter peak in 96. It was like the biggest mountain any Singapore team had climbed. Uh, and then eventually, we went to climb Cho Yu, uh, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world. And that was well over 8,000 meters. So again, okay. again, so not nearly, really very few, Everest. very few Southeast Asian teams that had done anything like that. So once that had happened in, in, the, the, in the autumn of 1997, we knew Everest was six months ahead and we knew we were ready. So we had everything. By the time we had scored up, we had scored up the finances, we, we had uh, got all the training and equipment and we were set basically. But it was a, enormous four-year effort to get to even to that so point. So that's incredible that that took four years. I'm interested to know when you said skills, you said that there were gaps in skills. How did you identify what those skills would be and and just how did you go about trying to develop them over those four climbs? Well, I mean, the kind of skills, basic alpine climbing skills you need on Everest is not very uh, very different from the ones you have in the Alps. But for the team, the team was of mixed abilities. So some people were very good rock climbers, but they hadn't had enough alpine experience. The ability to navigate in a glaciated environment, the ability to time a climb from start to finish, for example. So know at any stage of the climb how you're doing, whether you're well behind, whether you're ahead of schedule, whether you're on target. That means because you don't want to try to finish a climb in darkness, which is pretty dangerous, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah, how, how do you belay two people up on a rope using uh, improvised anchors on ice? on snow or something like that. Oh my God. Uh, Have you been in that situation yeah, before? Yeah, I've, I've been in a lot Were of situations. you timed it wrong? Uh, yes, but it was deliberate because you got to the point where we realized that we want to get to the top, but we know that that means we've got to spend a night out in the open on the mountain on the way down. <laughs> yeah, so, How so, was that for you? Uh, 
interesting. <laughs> Very cold, no sleeping bag. Uh, was, that was on Mount Cook, actually. And that was a fantastic experience, that was. <laughs> you say that's ex- an interesting experience. I mean, Coldest night of my life. Let's put it as a coldest night, coldest night in my life. Could you actually sleep or was it just kind of stand you up? Kind of kind of of... You kind of nod off. You kind of nod off. And we were kind of like a, we were in a kind of a ice, like a semi-covered ice cave. We right. were in a bookstore. And I think our body heats affected the delicate balance in that cave because at about 3 a.m. in the morning, we heard a lot thunk. And then a stalactite had snapped off from the roof and it fallen and buried itself like a stick next to where I was sleeping. And I looked up and two more fell like like large icy sticks that thudding into the ground. Wow. Next to us. I said, crikey, I said, we're going to be like skewered, you know, like vampires. I think <laughs> so it was time to go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we left shortly after that. But yeah, it was a... It was an uh, that was an unpleasant. It was not a very pleasant night, but it was quite an experience. You need to go through this because you know if you ever need to do that again, you know what to what you need and you you know how to survive a night like that. But what? definitely, it was like minus five degrees with a no sleeping bag. I didn't even have a down jacket. I think with me. Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow. So it's those little things that you don't yeah. necessarily anticipate. That is a. It's good that it does happen to you so that you can kind of learn from that. Yeah. What were the other skills you mentioned? You said that you know. I'll, I mean, a lot, of it, a lot of it, believe it or not, are really mundane skills. Like, for example, how do you fire up a pressure stove in the, your tent vestibule? What's what? the best way, the fastest way to melt snow or ice into hot water for drinks, for example? So what is the fastest way? What's it? Oh, don't melt snow. It's very sad. Melt blocks of ice if you can find it. Oh. Or compress oh, snow right. at the best, you know, because snow is a good insulator, so you don't want that, you know. And then how do you keep the stove warm? How do you prevent wastage of the heat, you know, when you're doing something like that, you know, boiling, we call it making water, for example. And so how do you go about trying to... There are a couple of ways. One, you try and put a kind of aluminum windshield, which okay. you, you can buy for $20 online, or you can you can buy for $2 by cutting the bottom out of a turkey turkey basting tray you know, <laughs> from a cold store. So you, there's so many ways to play this game. So I've played the game Deluxe Fashion. I've played it in a really like, you know, like a El Cheapo, you know? Yeah. I, so I've, I've climbed with really cheap equipment, really, really cheap equipment for, in a non-mission critical areas. And I've climbed with some very expensive equipment because I wanted that piece for a very specific reason. So a lot of people think that mountaineering, even big scale mountaineering is all all this expensive is not necessarily the case. There's so many ways you can cut corners. The key question is not to cut corners in mission critical areas because that right. means you could fail completely and have mm. turned back or you could die, right? Right. Yeah. Probably not worth the risk. That's probably that's probably not no. worth the risk. Um, when it comes to putting your trust in the Sherpas, which is, for, for again, the listeners that may not be so familiar, the people that are living in the Himalayas and are renowned for their skills in, in mountaineering, how do you, I mean, I assume that you had a Sherpa that helped you on the expedition on, or not? All right. So Sherpas is a very interesting relationship that, you know, that, that okay. climbers have with Sherpas because you won't find them if you do expeditions to Peru or to other places. So I've, I've only ever used Sherpas in the context of in Nepal or what we call HAPs, high altitude porters. Mm-hmm. And the skill set of these people range very, very wildly. Some of them have gone for courses in Europe. Some of them have attended courses in Nepal. Uh, and some of them are actually quite skillful. And some of them have really attained some level of like mountain guide skill sets. They know how to tie the right knots, how to do a three-way pulley, for example. And some of them basically just just learned on the fly. Wow. And so, yeah. Good and bad. So, yeah, that's good. So if, if, you, if you collapse, they wouldn't know how to do CPR on you for a time. Right. They, I mean, they, so if, so right. I would say it varies. Some of them are very skillful, yeah. some of them are not. It's not like not, it's regulated you know, in any but, way. But yeah. almost certainly the average Sherpa, as we've got a climbing, a climbing mm. high-altitude porter, it's going to be insanely fitter than, than the av- average trained up mountaineer. 
Right. So some some hilarious situations have appeared. I, 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 the, the conversations I've had with shippers revolve around that. Second thing about it, we made sure that we were not going to go to Everest climbing with a bunch of strangers. So we made sure that most of the key Sherpas had been with us on previous expeditions. Right. So we could assess them as well as they could assess us. And right. they could then also climb with a degree of confidence that these guys right. aren't total rank amateurs that had to be handheld all the way. Because some people need tr truly to be almost handheld, short roped all the way to the summit of Everest. Right. And we did not want to climb in that fashion, right. in that sense, yeah. Um, so the Sherpas, we also, we tried to make the Sherpas an integral part of our team. That means wore the same colored jackets as us. We gave them a lot, some very nice gear, actually, to make them feel part of the team. Yeah. And not so much like hired help. Yeah. You'll see in some other expeditions, they're respected, but it's very clearly that they're the hired help. Okay. In, our side, in our team, we did not want to make the divide too significant in it. And these are people that you still talk to today? or is Yeah, my head shepherd, my head shepherd from Everest, who I climbed with even before Everest, yeah, we're still in contact. Um, is he still going up there? No, he's kind of like semi-retired. Like, I mean, right. he's got a, he's got, he moved to a faraway village in a beautiful part of Nepal in the Manaslu area. Right. And he, like, he's like a farmer now. He right. does do a bit of trekking because you're not in Kathmandu. You don't get the leads from the trekking agencies. I did get him onto my climb in 2016 and that's the last time we climbed together. Which, right. uh, and it was good to climb with him again after what 14 years a 14 year gap wow yeah because after, even after Everest, you... yeah, uh he's still gross he's still incredibly fit and strong yeah it's incredible <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's just the lifestyle that they lead and yeah. also i think they have a huge propensity to absorb punishment uh and suffering without complaining about it compared right. to the rest of us i think yeah. but the rest would be over in about a, about a minute pretty <laughs> you mean, much you mean the classic whinging pommies yes exactly <laughs> we didn't stand any of that um <laughs> yeah so, so and you observe how, what they eat you try and learn a few things from them you respect the culture that, david i'm just interested to know that when you talk about the nutrition side how does that affect just in terms of the energy levels or just oh yes because like, on, vegetarians I mean, on, an, on, on an average working day on an expedition carrying stuff up to high camps coming down again you're talking about a day that's an easily maybe an eight to twelve hour day we're not even talking about summit day which could be a 20 hour day or even longer wow um you you're, you're easily burning maybe about you know five to ten thousand calories a day there's no way that you can eat or absorb that amount of calories mm. normally mm. so you have to change your diet uh you have to at those days you have to eat a reasonably what i call unbalanced diet which means you really got stuck out on high density foods right that you can that you can stomach you know right whether it's chocolate whether it's like the shepherds they they use sampa flour they use sampa balls right which is like roasted barley flour that's ground wow. then it's mixed with sugar yeah butter then they compact it into small little balls which they'll bring in plastic bags together with a bag of tea and a bag of white are like sugar well, and like so they, so they drink mm. the black tea they just eat this it's like, it's like drinking eat it because yeah. some parts high very high in fiber in carbohydrates and high yeah. in protein as well yeah. it's reasonably tasty so you think about it, is they're almost like a low cost version of an energy bar yeah. and they can live on, on that for like a, several days just Gosh, eating that's incredible. some because really you can incredible. turn you can crush it and turn it into a kind of a porridge right. you could put salt in it to make it savoury you could put right. sugar in it to make so it's it, quite versatile it's quite, your, it's quite yeah. versatile it's pal it digests very easily it's completely vegan <laughs> vegetarian yeah. uh, so there's a lot to be said about observing how they how they cope and how they eat you know but um I was really keen to get to know a little bit more about how you went about putting a team together. Because you said sort of years ago when there was sort of a teacher and, you know, yeah. when you actually climbed Everest, 
What were the team dynamics at that stage? Well, you see, but I would say that roughly half the team liked each other and half didn't. Seriously? <laughs> yes. It wasn't like, here's a bunch of good buddies that came together, cooked up this plan, and yeah, now, you know. the Hollywood now, movie. Now, now, yeah, yeah, it wasn't like that. Obviously, there were a couple of people within my close circle that were ideal candidates for it, but not all of them. Some of them were invited, but after one year, they dropped out. Okay. Um, but eventually, when once the word became public, people began to apply and sign up. And you come across the odd person that you, just out of your circle, why? He's maybe studying or working in the UK for years, but he's climbed in the Alps. So we had one person like that on our team, you know, like so. So we brought him in, and then there's some other people that you get to know who have done some minor Himalayan or Alpine climbs, and you ask, how do you assess them, right? So we had a very simple assessment process, right? The three, even when I talk about this to corporates, I said, you know, we have five C's in picking teams, but we started with three, which was commitment mm -hmm. to the project, mm -hmm. uh, competence. They could have some kind of basic mountaineering skills, yeah, and third, compatibility, right. Which means they are not the, a total pain in the ass. Yeah. They're not total pain in the ass. Yeah. Exactly. Because that, la yeah, that, that last one is yeah. totally underrated uh, by certain mountain leaders who are less experienced. And it's probably totally underrated in the corporate, corporate circles as well. Mm. Compatibility is so important. When you're, when you're working with that person for days, weeks, on end, sometimes in close quarters, sometimes you're in a tent for a week in a storm, right? Yeah. Having someone that you can laugh with, someone that, that, that shares similar values for the climb, it's yeah. absolutely critical in Bring just the own, whole yeah. morale and the reason why you're there. The, that, that they contribute significantly to you know, the whole journey aspect of climbing a mountain, right? The last thing you want is somebody who's a superb climber, a highly motivated uh, mountaineer, but it's a total ass yeah. when it comes to yeah. uh, uh, generosity, helping others out on the mountain, or doing anything that doesn't actually help them personally. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes you have people like that on a team as well. Yeah. <laughs> you you yeah. find out about that or you find they have some uh, character aspects like that. And it's not Has very that pleasant. happened when you've gone up on an exhibition? Yes, maybe yes. We had, like, had someone like that on a team as well. Oh, you did have someone yes. on that team. But you see, that person has certain other redeeming qualities as well, for example. You see, so I would say roughly as we began to climb together more frequently in the 90s, building okay. up to Everest, you could really tell that there's some people I consider to be marginal, meaning that if this was not a national expedition and I had a different, uh, had a different social contract with them as an expedition leader organizer, they'd be out. <laughs> I'd kick them out in, in, in a heartbeat. What was it that they weren't compatible? What was it that they were saying? I think, I think one of it is basically just a, quite a bit of selfishness sometimes, on or even off the mountain sometimes. And that, you can see that really like, bleeds through you can see it up within a short space of time here and the key question whether you think that the pluses they bring outweigh the minuses yes. but of course if you're doing a kind of a friends a mates kind of expedition right that person wouldn't even be considered wouldn't have been asked to join a team like right, that interesting. right really interesting it's a bit like you're let's say you let's say hypothetically in the 90s you're the manager of the argentinian world cup football team mm. and you know somebody like diego maradona is a superstar he's your match winner and you know, the, the score is tied and, and you need someone to make a difference. Now, if you still keep him on the bench for some reason, you're not doing your job as the Argentinian national manager, are you? No. So I was exactly in the same kind of situation in that right. sense. Right? But ultimately, you begin to learn where to put these people so they don't impact the team through their yeah. personality traits too negatively. But it must, it must wear down, say, yourself or the leader mm. that's taken the expedition because you, are you sort of more mindful that they may be doing certain things or are, or do you sort of... All the time. Carp yeah. <laughs> all the, you know, all yeah. the time. And then there's some people on the team you can, you can trust implicitly. 
to do the right thing without mm. having to ask them in that sense, mm. right? Uh, and then some people, you could absolutely make sure they do that thing because you know, because for example, because of the character, their nature, they're going to try and make life for themselves as easy as possible, even if it means inconveniencing somebody else mm. in that sense, yeah. Um, Interesting, so, isn't it? It's yeah. the same with in terms of workplace teams, isn't it? It, it is, seems exactly it? the same. Really, it is, isn't it? It? So in many ways, you know, expeditions on Everest represent a microcosm of what happens in the real world. Yeah. And that's why, you see, when I talk story, when I talk about some timeless lessons, a lot of people resonate with that because they can yeah. see that happening in, you name it, in their workplace, yeah. in their in their club or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they can yeah. See it it's like, do you keep them on the bus um, or put them <laughs> at the back of the bus or do you just chuck them off the bus, right? <laughs> yeah. when, it, when it comes to advising... Um, Oh, yeah, that was one thing I was going to ask you. I want to go back one sec. How did you go? So what were the non-negotiables within the team? Like you said before about, you know, you needed people that were sort of, you know, that had the same values, same sort of sense of purpose. Were there sort of <coughs> key things that were kind of, no, that's a complete no-go? I mean, was it was it just to do with the, the three Cs or were there other sort of non-negotiables? Coaching provides the space for professionals to take time to hit the pause button, reassess, make decisions, commit to new action and move forward with clarity. To enjoy a 10% discount on our coaching programs, reach out and quote the word talent. Talent Talk Asia is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the all-in-one CRM for ambitious recruitment businesses. Visit vincere.io forward slash Talent Talk Asia for an exclusive offer for all listeners of this podcast. Yeah, I think the commitment was a big one then. Because, you know, you're talking about a three-and-a-half-year project in which people might have to take unpaid leave. Yeah, you of know, course. You know, sometimes some people yeah. find that they can't make... They're really nice people. They're really sincere. Uh, yeah. they're, they're quite good at what they're supposed to do, as in, like, mountaineering. Unfortunately, because of commitment reasons... So not not there, you know. And sometimes because like one of my one of my friends who dropped out is of course he had a child. He became a new father and he felt it was inappropriate for him to continue. He wasn't having the baby, was he? <laughs> oh. That's no excuse. Come yeah. on. Yeah, no, I'm no, joking. So, I'm, so, so, I could it's, never do this. Yeah. I'm really so, so, yeah, I guess you're, so, so, there are a lot of there are a lot of what you call a hygiene question. So even now mm. in a in the corporate sector, right? I often ask clients, you know, by the way, I've got a hygiene question to ask you. And that's the question, like, you know, look, you know, like Here's a particular non-negotiable here. Are you okay with that? And these are typically hygiene questions you have to ask. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, some people are conflicted. They want to do, they want to be part of the Everest yeah. team for a variety of their own yeah. personal reasons, but they can't fulfill certain yeah, non-negotiables, right no yeah. timing and things. And, you know, that, that's what it is. I think one, there was one chap I knew who wanted to join. Um, guess what? Right now, he's doing the kind of climbing that he had been doing 25 years ago. He would have been invited on a team without without a... Without a second's loss. Right. Yeah, see, this is what it is. So, so yeah. sometimes you know the right person, wrong time in your life. Yeah. No, it is. Could describe for me the whole experience of climbing Everest. Um, I guess if you've served time in the like armed forces or done some that kind of similar kind of work or duty, it's a bit like that. There are long periods of inactivity interspersed with very short periods of intense, exhausting, terrifying bouts of activity. Everest is a bit like that because for the 60-day, for a 60-day expedition mm -hmm. in which roughly about, I would say, 15 days is walking there and back kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so roughly of the, what, 45 days left, only something like 25 days is actually, is the climbing. Right. The rather half of the time just sitting right. around at base camp waiting 
for the bad weather, they clear sitting at base camp to recover from one, so what we call a cycle up and down and resting up to let your, your, your body build more red blood cells to cope with the high altitude. And are you just sleeping or are you playing cards? It usually it's active, yeah, it's, it's often active rest, active rest at base camp. A good breakfast, you know, check your email. You've got a, you've got a satellite hookup. Wow, okay. That's <laughs> yeah. different. Sorry, I had to check email as the expedition leader. You know, the updates updates from you In know, terms from of the weather people. and updates from updates from the people and then of course personal personal messages for the team members. Um, yeah, because it's a long time, isn't it? Media, yeah. media queries and things. So we were one of the very few teams there that had a complete with a tent that was completely set up as the communications tent. That's incredible. And we had a guy, Johan, who was our communications czar. You know, he was the guy with the two desktops and the two laptops. Altogether, we had 330 kilos of equipment. Wow. Did he have to go up with you as well? Yeah, he did. He, did. he was at base camp for two months, as did Dr. Shani, actually. Wow. Uh, and it was, it was fascinating. So th there's so many aspects. Of it. It's almost like say, you are, is, you, is it really like leading a unit into a kind of a mm. major military campaign? In some ways, yes, there's a logistical similar. chain. There's a supply chain management to be considered. Uh, mm. the, the unexpected, the weather, uh, and then the strategizing, the, the weather patterns, for example. And then it's going around to the other camps finding out what is the current state of the mountain, how's the route being prepared and fixed, for example, on that mountain there. So you're getting information for people that are already up there? Yeah, from because, other as Sherpas, pro, because, or because you're sharing you're sharing resources with other teams. So sometimes okay. they're using your Sherpas to push the fixed rope further up, right. the, the safety rope. Sometimes right. they're using their Sherpas, for example. So it's constantly... And then, of course, if you've got weather reports, you want to share that with another team to find out, well, what's your saying? <laughs> Mine saying this, what's your saying? Yeah. Because some we had two, we had two, we had Singapore Meteorological Department weather reports, specifically Everest, yeah. and we had one guy we called him the Bracknell guy. He was the guy who was like superb at interpreting the weather. It's like reading tea leaves. You know? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's a science and an art at the same time because you know there's nothing they can guarantee that the weather right. will be. So, so it's all predictive. It's a lot what, of it's yeah, a, lot, a lot of predictive, experience. a lot of predictive right. skill. So there was this guy that we paid to actually send us these reports every few days. So we would match that with what we would get from Singapore Meteor, and then we would discuss it with other teams as well. Gosh, you're really having to put so much faith in others. Uh, yes, it's a, right? I said it's a long logistic yeah. even, even the satellite communications equipment. When I when I said uh, how much baggage allowance do you need, I asked our comms guy. Yeah, I I did I did it. I did what three hundred and thirty kilos. I I like Gosh, left, I, I fell off my chair. He says I want you to put every now on an Excel spreadsheet, and he did. He weighed every item. And everything came up to three hundred and thirty kilograms. Now wait now, but interesting. I went we went I went back to Everest three years later for another expedition, and that load came down to fifty six kilos. Why was that? A year, another year later, I went myself on a like a solo expedition to some big eight thousand meter mountains with a similar satcom setup, and it dropped down to twelve kilos. By two thousand and three, I could do it through one handheld device and a handheld and a handheld um like a, like a kind of like a what do you call those things? Smart pad or something like that? Yeah. Tablet, like tablet, a tablet, yeah, like a tablet yeah. right? Those so that just shows how much it's evolved. It's right? technology. It's That's technology. amazing. It's, nowadays, people with like one kilo of equipment can send video. They can send broadcast quality, high definition video. Amazing. They can send track. Yeah, I mean, people who are living, I would say, in the last five to ten years, don't know incredible how lucky they are compared yeah. to even something as recent as say twenty five years ago, where we had this enormous amount of effort. Or just even further than twenty five years ago, mm. when you imagine you know, people doing it 100 odd years ago and what they would have had to have kind of yes, brought up. Well, they wouldn't have had technology like that, but well, in terms they, of kind of the heavy silk, sort of stuff. Silk underwear and woolen, woolen shirts and tweed jackets. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what 
they did that's what they wore in the 1920s right? yes, tweed jacket out there well that would have kept you warm to be yes. fair that and, and actually a lot the equipment was actually very well designed for the client they were doing there have been a lot of studies on this, actually. That, that, that so-called climbers on like Mallory's days in the 1920s actually weren't that bad. They weren't that worse off, you know, in that sense, because a lot of the things they wore made a lot of sense for the climbing they were well, doing there. I would think the single most important piece of equipment that has advanced dramatically in the last 50 years has been boots. Right. Warmer, lighter, mm. stiffer. Right. So you say that's the one thing you would the invest singular, in. The, the singular, yeah, that's sing, the you would be going to decathlon then to get your boots, David. No, is <laughs> no, that, they, they that's a no go. They wouldn't have those kind of boots. Though. Right. Um, we we talked about the sort of skills before, but what talents do you what talents do you have that maybe not everyone possesses? Do you think either yourself or others on the on the um, expedition? You know, it's interesting. It's, uh, after the expedition, I would come and see corporate clients, you know, mm. for a meeting because maybe they wanted to hire me as a motivational speaker. Yeah. And more than one of them looked at me as I entered the office, looked at me and says, you don't look like a mountaineer, they would say. And I actually took it as a compliment. Yeah, what does a mountaineer look like? Is there a certain I, yeah, look? Maybe they're thinking of someone like <laughs> Sylvester Stallone yeah. in his prime. But I love that statement because that's it. What should a mountaineer look like? Yeah. Now, in my I mean, I, I read the statistics and everything. There is a kind of optimal size for high altitude alpinism mountaineer. Apparently, there is an optimal size. You can't be carrying too much muscle. Okay. Because okay. you need a lot of oxygen for that. You can't right. be too bulky. You can't be too muscle bound. Okay. And, and you can't be a skinny runt either in a right. sense, right? But I think um, it, it's, it's got to be kind of optimal mix of trade-offs where you can move rapidly, efficiently on the mountains. But in terms of uh, what kind of skills I had, I think I had a lot of determination. Where did that and, come from, do you think? If you look uh, back on Being your told I couldn't do it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think one of the big determining factors, uh, one thing I like, that I really love to do is to prove people wrong. Right. <laughs> and is that sense. something that you've seen from your family life? Has that always been something to prove to, to, to the pet? You know, so you know, so certain incidents in my life where you know, I was expecting a degree of support and, and affirmation. And in fact, I got the complete opposite. So there's nothing so better than tell you. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's that kind of fire in that yes, belly that's yes, like. So does that mean then that you've, you know, when you said you did running, then you did rowing? I know that's obviously a team, an expedition yeah. is a team, but individual and a team. Yes. Is that sort of something that's kind of gone with you all your life in terms of this inner, inner drive, you know, this comp that you're competing with yourself? There is a degree of that. You know, of course, that fluctuates and it wanes and waxes depending on which stage of life that you are in, in that sense, right? of what you want to achieve so in many ways you think about it, you know if you look at the whole perspective yeah i wasn't the strongest climber on the team i wasn't the fastest either uh, but i was kind of like in the middle i was kind of like i hid here in the places that i think that mattered you know um in what way uh for example the the, the ability to schmooze <laughs> i definitely would say you were definitely charismatic the, the ability yeah. to build rapport with corporate yeah. clients and part dollars from them <laughs> To support this, to negotiate, to yeah. support a venture that's not going to be televised, you know, but it's yeah. going to be a first, you know, yeah. yeah. That kind of thing, that 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 chutzpah, you know, that chutzpah to actually do that. Yeah, I I think I've always had a, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. That and, way we mattered. And I know I had questions on here because I stupidly assumed you were Singaporean because you were leading a Singapore team. I don't know why I assumed that, but hey, I made those assumptions. So for you being a Malaysian living most mm. of your life some of your life in Singapore 
how did that make you feel sort of that connection to Singapore and you know was there that feeling of proudness because I, I assumed that the team was a mixed nationality yeah yeah it was it was but one one criteria we had to have that to join the team you had to be a Singapore citizen or right. a right. permanent resident right because we did, because at that time if you rem- I don't know how long you've been here but you may remember there's always been some general discomfort in the public about uh, Importing athletes from different yes, countries, very familiar, and then, yes. and, and, then, and then fast-tracking them <laughs> to games to to get medals draped around the neck in yes. the name of Singapore, right? Yes. And so yes. we wanted we wanted assiduously to avoid that kind of impression. As a result, okay. I said, "Look, you guys need to have made your home in Singapore first, right? And then when you apply to join the expedition, you know there's there's a true element of Singaporeanness in you, right? You know, rather than you trying to use this." expedition as a vehicle for your personal fame to fast track your citizenship or something like that and so to that we hopefully achieved to the nth like degree that. in like a sense that. because mm. a few asked me well you know why didn't you just keep it all Singapore citizens because you know why it wouldn't get done because they just aren't the, the talent pool Right. For people to do errors like this, it's just not there. It's not right. enough, really. So what was the nationalities of everyone on the team? Uh, all of them were uh, Singapore citizens mm-hmm. uh, or Malaysians with Singapore PR status. The only mm-hmm. person on the team who was not a uh, Malaysian was Colonel Bruce Niven, who was my base camp manager. And because he had no interest <laughs> in reaching the top, Bruce right? Niven, wow. Yes. So we had a Scott. We had this Scott who was at that time the commanding officer or the newly retired commanding officer of the Gurkha contingent in here. So when people wow. also ask me, why do you have this Caucasian guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who's your base camp manager here? This is very simple. No one. He led the British Army Annapurna expedition to success in 1970 or 71. Two, he speaks three Nepalese dialects fluently. Wow, that's incredible. Three, he used to be with a special special air services regiment in the UK. So how old was he when he was when he joined my you? team, he was about 56. So I tend to actually have him about 58. So if you want somebody to guard your back, to have your oh back. Oh my gosh, right, he's the man. He is the man. That's why I say you show me a Singaporean, you give you drop a few of those like like CV items. Find a Singaporean who can speak Nepalese yeah. fluently, has had some leadership experience and, and made decisions in the yeah. field, right? I seriously consider them to be that com- that base camp manager. But at the moment, there doesn't seem to be yeah. anyone. Right? They've lived there for years. Yeah. Did he live, yeah, did yeah, he yeah, live yeah, in yeah, the region? Yes, yes, yes for a for, for long, 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 long time, basically. Uh, is he still with us today? Or? Uh, he's, uh, he's, now, he's now living in Nepal, but he's still doing leadership tracks for Singapore Police Force, I believe. Yeah. Incredible. What a what a man. What yeah, a man. He's a, I mean, he's, he's got a, his own yeah, stories it's a, Yeah, so, a soldier, soldier. I, I could go on a lot about him, but he was quite a character. Let's put it this way, right? It, did you enjoy that relationship with each other? Did it, did it oh, challenge man, you? Was, yeah, because yeah, 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 he, he would be very quiet. I mean, I mean, for somebody who in charge of the 900 strong Gurkha Battalion, for somebody who was an officer in a special service regiment, for him to just sit down at our our monthly meetings and only speak up when he had something worth saying says a lot about him mm, it does it, it does, very right? much does you know yeah, <laughs> yeah so, there's a so lot of weight I, behind him he's thinking he's deliberating yeah, and you I, respect I, his opinion when he does say exa- something exactly in fact if it hadn't been for his opinion some people might not be where they are today actually in that sense yeah 
wow. during, during that Sounds time. Sounds absolutely so, incredible. So yes, it was quite it was quite a team that went to Everest in nineteen ninety. Quite a diverse, quite a diverse team. And do you still catch up now? Do you still talk to each other um, now? But yeah, we try and we try and do a curry dinner once a year. Right. Unfortunately, for the last year and a half, he's been in, stuck in Nepal, and you know, um, so he's got, probably going to stay there until this whole COVID thing dies down. Interesting. And what did you learn about yourself along the way, both positively and negatively, through not just the Everest yeah. expedition, just all over the years of, of climbing? Um, what I learned myself. Mm. Um, <laughs> there can be one stubborn fella if, if, you know, if someone puts me in a difficult position. A second, I think I've learned that uh, I've got a heck of a lot more um, perseverance than I imagine. Right. Uh, would you uh, say that a lot of people have that and they don't yeah. get the opportunity yes, to I find was, out I would say, I would say too but I would say that one thing though uh, you know probably when I look back in those days maybe I wish I would have been a little bit more compassionate in something sometimes I think I was probably a little bit harsh can um, you give me an example of that under where the, you under look the, back under now the, under pressure yeah I think when I fired one person from the team right right yeah if I knew then what I knew now I think I would have done it a little bit differently right I don't think he was right for the team but I think I would have done it quite differently right, so the delivery of it wasn't quite uh, how yeah you ex do it exa now. Ex mm. exactly so I always like to ask people in the corporate sector how many of you here fired people and then uh, and hands yeah. got so, uh, interesting to talk to people like yeah that, and actually. how many have done it the wrong way yeah you put your <laughs> hands up right I think exactly exactly yeah no, this is it yeah can anyone climb Everest? Could I climb Everest? Absolutely, yes. However, <laughs> it's my qualification. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, seriously. I think any 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 reasonably fit person has a fairly good chance because this is on Everest. There's so much support given or accessible support that um, I'm not saying you, it's still a very hard two months, but there's so many ways now you can do to make life a lot more pleasant and, and like, I mean, look, the chance of the chances of climbing Everest now have improved dramatically because mm. of improved uh, com uh, information, yes, communication. Safety has gone sky high as well. Still, people die uh, simply because of all the long, all the new long line helicopter rescue techniques, which they've been, which wasn't available 25 years ago. Um, quality of equipment has gone up. Mm. How many people do die every year? I mean, how many people do you know those sort of okay, stats? Yeah, stats, yeah roughly that, speaking, if you see 300 people on Everest base camp scattered all over the base camp, in a given season, roughly about six or seven will not go home. Jeez, so when you I look around, yeah, so it's, it's still very low. It's still a very low percentage. Wow. Not to so an insurance underwriter. to do yeah. that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a huge risk. So I'll yeah, ask a hygiene question. Are you the sole breadwinner? Do yeah. you have a family that matters to you? I'm serious. Because some people say, I want to climb K2 in winter, solo, without oxygen. And I say, okay, great. But I have to ask a few hygiene questions first before I give you any advice. You know, just difficult yeah. conversations. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. important conversations. Mm. Was there any part during the expedition that you wanted just to give up? Where you just thought, you know what? I, I just can't do it anymore. No. No, no, no. Uh, did anyone that, feel like that? No, nope, not team? Singapore. But we did, we did, because we did had a lot of discussions before we left Singapore, including discussions like, okay, if something happens and somebody is killed or badly injured, do we call off the expedition? And we deliberated and we decided, the answer is no. Unless, wow. unless that hazard is a clear and, clear and sustained and present danger beyond that accident, the accident uh, we will continue with the climb. So that's, that's, that was it. So again, we created a lot of scenarios for ourselves. We talked it through and we made certain decisions collectively as a team so that we didn't have to make it on a mountain. One thing I haven't asked you, which you've just sort of prompted that with, that, with what you just said there, why have you wanted to climb Everest? 
gosh, because of climbing all the other mountains you haven't heard of before getting Everest was the fun part. <laughs> right. Honestly, a lot of people on my team actually admitted that actually Everest would allow us to have a great excuse to go and climb really interesting mountains before Everest's preparation that we would not have had the chance to do so. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's true about it. You know, even now when I look about it for after 70 alpine ascents and expeditions, 70, I think I counted gosh, last. That is, that is a lot. Yeah. Uh, Everest wow. is not on my number one as the most like most like incredibly powerful enriching climbing experience I ever had. It's up there very high. It's, it be, was unforgettable. What would be the ones that you are that you would say that you enjoyed the most? I think it was my comeback climb after my disability. And I want to go on to that. I want to get on. <laughs> let's let's get on to that now because I think yeah. that would be really if if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, actually was there a bit before that I want yeah I'll come back to the other questions seeing that we've gone on to that question now obviously something happened on the on the um when you completed Everest talk me through what happened afterwards with when you referred to your disability well we succeeded successfully as one journalist said meaning that we failed we had a failed first attempt and then when the chips were down we Pushed victory at the last minute, you know. So that's why called succeeding successfully was what he described. Oh, it, yeah. okay. You know, it's a bit like the trapeze artists in circus. They never make their their hardest so-called uh, move succeed the first time, do they? That's, right. No. It, makes, it raises no. the anticipation level. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, ah, ooh, ah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So coming back, all national heroes in the country, very short on national heroes. Um, but the people at the airport, you know, was uh, there it was there was one thousand people at the airport. Oh, we, were, wow. we went there thinking, uh, which rock group or pop group is coming on the <laughs> you, same were you night? Looking behind you? Yeah, yeah, yeah we were. We you. literally we were because we couldn't recognize them. So these people, when we left, there were like maybe 20, 30 people who were all immediate family members or friends. So we came back. What is you? They're like, like, like they had like banners and flags and waving going on, and you suddenly realize, oh, they've come to say yeah. hello to us. How did you feel when when you got off when you got to the airport and saw that? Yeah, a little bit uncomfortable actually, <laughs> with all that kind of attention, kind of thing, right? Uh, but yeah. you know, but what happened was that uh, a couple of days, a few days later, I started having some strange sensations, like um, loss of strength in the left hand. And uh, kind of more pinch nerve, maybe something. So things, I just let it roll until Tuesday night, where I suddenly realized I couldn't feel my my right thigh. Oh my god! <laughs> I was still lying in bed. Yeah, wasn't everything was fine. Then on Wednesday morning, I went to see my doctor. He says I'll write you a referral letter. I jumped in a taxi and admitted myself into hospital, and that's where it went downhill from there. So within like two or three days, I was I was unable to. To stand, unable to speak, and doctors didn't know what it was I had. So, do you think it was a stroke at first? At first, yeah, no, yeah, at first, they thought it was all that high blood, mm. all that high altitude that gives me thickened, you know, blood from all the red mm. blood cells, and that caused a what they call an is a trans ischemic attack, where it's basically like a stroke, or right. a semi-stroke. Uh, but when they did the test, um, you know, no, nope, that's not it at all. So after the fourth day, uh, they found out what it was. It was this rare nerve disorder called. Um, Guillain-Barre syndrome or GBS which affects maybe one in a hundred thousand people it's, it's rare but not super rare in that sense yeah. uh, and uh, they realize what in the, the confirmations when they take some spinal fluid out of you and if that tests positive for protein in it then you've got Guillain-Barre syndrome and Justin who was my best friend on the expedition was the first to break the news to me he ran into my room saying Dave, Dave guess what he said you know you know, the, you know, the doctors have found out what you've got. You've got this rare, sexy-sounding French disease. And if you die, you'll be a legend. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I know. 
Yeah. <laughs> but that was memorable for yes, you. Yes, that was memorable, actually. <laughs> and then a few hours later, the doctor comes in, a neurologist comes in. He says, Dave, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news for you. First, the good news. 85% of people recover completely from Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, now the bad news. This is like the worst thing you can get and not die from. <laughs> oh, God. So you did go through this living hell that, you know, for the next few days, right, you, you begin to lose all the ability to do anything. The mind is still functioning. It doesn't affect the central nervous system. So you can think and hear, can understand everything, but you suddenly they have to intubate you because your breathing stops. So they have to intubate you, put you on a ventilator. Of course, then you can't speak. So you knew what was going on. You could hear, but yeah, you couldn't I, you physically could move, do yeah, anything. I could move. For, uh, after that, for a few weeks after that, all I could move was my left eyelid, basically. So you communicated by blinking. So they would raise an alphabet chart. They run a finger next oh, to gosh. the chart. And you would blink gosh. if it's... And of course, the number of mistakes that they can make from that, right? So it was a very frustrating time. And then when you're in an in intensive care unit for more than 10 days, it's very likely you'll get um, uh, hospital-acquired um, pneumonia. And so I had that too. So that they come and stick a tube down your lungs and suction the gunk out from your lungs every two hours uh, around the clock, basically. So this was my life for about nearly more than four, forty-three days on the ventilator. Were so, you aware of what yeah, was totally, going totally on? Yeah, totally aware. Totally aware. I was not put in a coma. I was not oh, put gosh. completely aware. So exactly. And you have a lot of time to think about things during time because you're totally immobile. What were you going? What can you remember? What you were going through? Oh yeah. yeah what well, you're thinking about? Well, what are you going to do when you get out of here? Or Oh God, you know, like my arms pinned under my left side. Mm, how do I get my arm out from under my left side? Of course, you can feel everything. You know, you can feel your fingers going to sleep, but you can't do anything about it. You know, if that something painful happens, you can't move a muscle about it. It's like those horror movies where they've given you injection. It's yes. paralyzing. And now mm -hmm. they start taking out your fingers or pulling out your fingers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there was a kind of sensation there, you know. Um, and you try to work very hard to make your life as comfortable as possible within the four small square walls of your room intensive care then eventually you get better they take the track before off. you get to yeah. that get better bit did you think you'd ever get better did you think that was it well after the first two weeks um the doctor said you're going to live so that's where you start getting some hope the first two okay. weeks was the worst obviously uh, but then it doesn't improve because you need to hit at the bottom bottom is what week four and then what happens the nerves begin to grow back again nerves begin to grow back again because the doctors have removed all the white blood cells which right. is causing the damage right. in the first place and then they give you donor white blood cells but the damage is done so after a week four the nerves begin to grow back about one millimeter a day wow and then slowly oh look I can move the tip of my little finger you say alright what can I do with that you so know? that must have felt like yeah. a real achievement yes exactly something yeah. was happening exactly yeah. even like months and months later right one of the greatest achievements was getting myself out of the hospital bed, putting myself into a wheelchair, rolling myself to the to the bathroom, standing up using the grab bars and having a piss standing up. Ah, oh, like, we go back to the to the nurses to the nurses section and stand up there at the counter and say, "You know what I did? I just did." It's like like so I was a kid, like so proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, I got the toilet yeah, myself. I got the toilet myself, kind of thing. Yes, exactly. That's what it but was. But it's the small things that exactly. are, that make a huge amount of difference. Mm, mm -hmm. So when you look back on that, and I'm I'm no I'm still keen to know about that recovery. But when you look back on that now. How does that make you feel? I mean, that's definitely the worst six months of my life, you know. Um, I mean, a, a lot of people will, you know, who have, who eventually die from something, mm. will, go, will go in and out of hospital before it happens. But I mm. think if you add all the time in hospital, it probably doesn't even come up to six months. And then, oh, six months inside. Uh, after about, I think, yeah. four and a half months, they thought it was good enough to send to the rehab 
uh, hospital, which was in a different place altogether. And was all this covered for? Were you was it because I mean it's well, not a cheap place yes, to be in hospital. No, in yeah, well it's, it's uh, well forty three days in intensive care is a thousand dollars a day. You do the math there. My total hospital bill was about one hundred thousand dollars. Did you have to pay that, or did well, you get some uh, well, sponsorship well, there were, there anywhere? Well, there were some subsidies. There were some subsidies, and then my insurance policy covered that, uh, the, the, oh. the balance. And interestingly, the policy had an interesting clause, which they no longer have in any policy now, travel policy. The travel policy had a clause that said that if anything happens to you after you return to Singapore, we'll cover you up to seven days after your return in case any latent disease pops up. Yeah. And I admitted myself to the hospital one on the last day of that extent. <laughs> so, mm, yes, yes, yeah. I highly recommend travel policies. When you said you went to the rehab, how long does that take you to kind of get to the point that you, that you can walk today? And It was a very slow process because to quote the words of my physiotherapist when she saw me, you're so screwed up, David, I don't know where to start. Because see, most people, when they go to the rehab wing, they're an amputee, so you know where to start yeah, with that. Yeah. Uh, they've had a stroke, you know where to start from there. Mm. But for me, the, dis the disability, the, the deficits were everywhere. In the left hand, the left hand was, left hand, the right hand were 50% down. Uh, right ankle doesn't work. Both calves don't work. So I had deficits all over my body. So they just start making me ambulant. They teach you how to stand and walk more consistently. How long did that take you to get to the point where you are today? How long did that take you to kind of, well, how long, yeah, how long did that take think, you to recover? I think it took about, well, uh, I think it took about six months altogether, including after I left the hospital, to get to some degree of normalcy, about six months. And then I just, bu I just built on that. I mean, just incremental gains, but I built on that in terms of fitness and strength and things like that. It's interesting that I've asked the physical side of it, but actually I've completely discounted the emotional side of that experience. Oh, yes. Is that something that's still with you today, you bring and it g g gets you emotional or you kind of put that aside? And oh, it's I, like I, I, I don't think I have any like post-traumatic like stress and nothing, nothing like that whatsoever. Uh, um, however, I did find coming home very difficult. Because you're back in familiar surroundings, but many things mm. in that surround in those surroundings you can't do. Like you can't reach up to a shelf to get a book, what? because yeah. your arms can't even. It took me about it took me nine months before I could raise both hands like this above my right. shoulders. So you can imagine that. Yeah. So just trying, just not being able to do those things at home was very frustrating. Yeah. Because you see, there's, I think there's a very fine line between helplessness and worthlessness. Mm. And occasionally you go over that line and mm. then it's, it's very, very mm. depressing. Mm. But eventually, you, you know, you realize life has to go on. Yeah. And no one's going to live your life for you. So it's time for you to get cracking basically. Yeah, but right? it kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning of our discussion when you were mm. saying about that determination that, you know, I don't like people telling me I can't do it. I can imagine that was also kind of that fire in that belly of, you know, I might not be able to get my arms up to here, but I'm going to be able to get them up to here. Yeah. I, I think it's very important in those kind of stages to have something to live for, to have something to want mm. to go back to. I wanted to get back to the mountains. A woman right. I met, a woman, an expat, expat living here in Singapore, uh, had GBS too. And she didn't. She had a very wow. mild case. Wow. But what kept her going through the rehab stage was that she wanted to dance with her like seven or eight-year-old child oh. daughter again. Isn't that nice? Isn't that sweet? Gosh, I'm gonna get really emotional. Uh, yeah. So, so, so that so that's what mm. kept. That's wanted to keep mm. her going. Yeah. So if someone else was going through sort of mm. not that exact experience, obviously, but what advice could you impart on listeners that might be going th going through something similar, or a loved one's going through sort of some health challenges or mental challenges? What would advice would you give like maybe there was something that your wife or family friends or even you know people that impacted you that got you on that road to recovery is there anything that you can share 
You know, I think it's important to have something to aim for and to live for. Mm -hmm. The micro thing is like getting up in my walker and walking, say, you know, 20 feet to that to that door, right? That could be the, a micro challenge, mm. right? And, the, the mode, and you could have some reason why you want to do that. You know why? Because I'm fed up having people to bring my glass of milk to me, right? Okay, that could, that could be what. Right? But yeah. then there has got to be a yeah. macro, a, a bigger reason, like, yeah. you know, like I want, to, I want to play with my kids again or something like that. Sorry about that. All right. Um... So um, let me let me turn this off here. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the, the, this may be a bigger reason to, as to w why you want to recover. If you don't have that, it's going to be tough. I think the second thing too is that everyone around you and you yourself included has got to realize that many things that you might have to go through mm. is going to take time. Yeah. And all of us, especially me, we're all we're all very impatient. We live in a very fast yeah. moving world, and it's very hard to put the brakes on that. Mm. You know, because some things are going to take a while mm. to happen. Yeah. Third thing I would say is that celebrate the little mercies and mm. achievements when you can. Mm. Never, never discount them. And if you go back to the corporate sectors like this, right? I'm just about to say that. People are successful at something, you know, mm. the, they reach a milestone. Guess what? They never pause. Mm. Let's all go out for a drink or, or a mm. meal. They never think... Let's press on. As a yeah, result, after, yeah, after mm. two or three of these scope milestones with the bigger goal, your team's burnt out yeah. already, right? Yeah. They've got no recovery. Yeah, the okay. passion's gone as well. Passion's yeah. gone as well because, again, you you should know when to speed things up. You should know when to slow things down. And That's I think if, if anyone's going mm. through what I went through or something similar, they themselves need to allow themselves time. Yeah. And again, the, the, the better the people around them can help them provide that, that time, you know, buy them that time, so to speak, right? Yeah. Take care of all the things that, that they would normally be doing. Yeah, it helps. Immensely. I think that's great advice to, to someone leading a team or, or about to lead a team in terms mm. of emerging leader. Just those little pieces of advice. Are you climbing days over? No, no, far from that, no? actually. Because eventually I want to combine that with climbing. We've got to take a picture of that when we go because otherwise people are not going to know what that is, yeah, our little yeah. skis there yeah, that we're right. that in, that I mean, in I mean, I mean, Ultimately, I'd like to be able to get good enough in skiing to be able to climb a mountain and wow. ski down the thing. Yeah. I know, it's such, a, wow. it's such a cool thing to be able it's to do. It's a very that. cool thing to do. Yeah. I want to bring us to the last part of the section, which is now you're, you, know, you, you have a career as a motivational speaker mm -hmm. and I can absolutely see why. Um, now, you are a motivational speaker to all global MMCs and SMEs globally. How did you make that transition? I fell into that business backwards. <laughs> because I, right. Because suddenly okay. people started asking me, can you come and speak to my people? You mean their stuff here? Yeah. So I said, all right. So what do they want? What do they want to need to hear? Then they yeah. told me that yeah. I went to deliver it. It seemed to go down very well. I said, here's some money for it. Or will you do it for X thousand dollars? <laughs> I said to them, wow, you can actually make money from this. <laughs> and I was so naive then, you know, 40, right. 20 years ago that I was, like, I was accepting like really, really small, modest fees right. until I met someone who called Steph Duplessis who changed my life because he said, do you know what, David? You know, he was a very well-known speaker in yeah. South Africa. He said, you know what, David? He said, you know, your material is world-class. What are you doing about your material? And I suddenly didn't realize I had this thing called material and I could yeah. actually... Scale yeah. it up, turn it into programs, yeah. courses, webinars, products, license. And that's where I am now. I've got products which are licensed globally. Uh, what are those products? Uh, the one that's licensed globally is this one. It's called Everest Challenger. Okay. It's a tabletop simulation of climbing Everest. Is that the picture in the background of where 
that you've got a picture in the background. Is that something to do with it or not? Uh, no, that's no. just a, that's just an artist. Uh, ah, uh, okay. artist. But uh, uh, the Everest Challenger is really a tabletop game for adult learning experiences. So it's, it's usually supervised by a qualified facilitator, yeah. which I've trained. Yeah. And I have licensees now in, uh, goodness, I think uh, the 10 countries or something like that. I've got like 40 over licensees. So a trainer can be um, get certified with you to be able to roll out and this they, for they, and leaders. Yeah, and, they, and they can run programs themselves. That's you know? exciting. Yeah, so I, wanna, I definitely want to, after this, talk to you about that. So, that so, so I've scaled myself up in that sense. And, and yes, and eventually that's what happened. I went into team building because it was a very good synergistic uh, spin-off from, from motivation speaking. It's like one client, it was Citibank, I think, you know, 20 years ago, said, fantastic presentation, Dave. How else can you help my team? And I stared yeah. at him like a deer in headlights. Yeah, I bet. Because I had nothing. I just <laughs> had the man. one, I had just the one yeah. speech. At that time, I was like, exactly. So I, I need to go back to school. Yeah. I need to know how to, to talk the walk. I've walked the talk. Now, how do I talk? the walk you know how do I turn it how do I get the curriculum development and so I had yeah. to go back and learn yeah. how to do this and eventually yeah. that led to well the last 20 years so that's what's so exciting is that you're not a, a, a facilitator where you're using other people's business models or you know this might work or you know you, you've done it you've led teams it, whether it's in a workplace or not that's kind of irrelevant it's those skills that you've you know those experiences you've had that you can impart onto a workplace I think it's just absolutely fascinating is there a specific topic that you're really fa passionate about that helps you um so what was my question? Yeah. Is there a specific topic that you're very passionate that helps you influence and help create change in your line of work now? Because obviously you have this ability to be able to influence key people across mm, multitude mm, of corporates. Mm, is, this, mm. is there something that's on your mind or a topic like, I don't know, climate change, whatever it might be, that is something that you're passionate about right now? I think it's improving how people lead each other or lead others um, or, and, them, and themselves because it all starts with there. It really all starts with that. You want to change the culture in your organization, guess what? It's got to start with how well do you lead yourself and others? And right. are there so aspects that of it? Yeah, do, do, do you need to change something in order for that thing to happen? You know, it all boils down to that. And I think we're obviously in a leadership deficit in many, many situations. We see. We oh, have yeah. been. We have been. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thankfully, the, the few changes politically yeah. of people around the world that hopefully it will yeah. start you know, getting like, back on track. Exactly. You know, it's about this, the courage to have certain conversations with your own people. Mm. And sometimes some things don't happen because somebody was afraid to have a certain conversation. Mm. It just, it's just a conversation, you know. Yeah. You're not going to die if it goes wrong, kind of thing, but people just yeah. come back to it. It's equipping people with that, isn't it? But also, I think in yeah. Asia, I know when I was recently coaching a, a, a female emerging leader mm. and saying this is part of leadership it, it, that path you're going on is being courageous if you can just try out and practice having those conversations and just see you know it's, it's it, it is practice it, it, otherwise you're never going to get there after we do something like this there are a lot of conversations about what made you be able to commit to that leap oh my gosh that trapeze thing another picture we need to put on there so that people know what we're talking <laughs> about that's the is that the one that's at bintan um, that particular trapeze. No, this one is the one in Sentosa. It's, it's, oh, this, this site okay. is gone. I think the site is gone now. Right. Basically, uh, all the redevelopment here. Yeah. Absolutely petrified. Uh, but it's a fantastic. The whole exercise of just actually climbing up, standing yeah. there, and then finally making the jump there. We break it down to stages of making. You know, okay. to, to climb a nine meter pole, stand on the top, which is the size of a dinner plate. Yeah. Balance there, you know, and you're perfectly safe because of the harness behind your back. Yeah. But then the next stage is that to leap into space to seize the trapeze that's dangling just beyond your reach. Right. 
What's what's what is the mental bridge you need in order to do that? Exactly, right? So we discuss, you know, when we do this thing, wow. we debrief for learning outcomes. That's one of the most powerful moments mm. for every time we run this, I ask them, how many of you think you exceeded your limits? You know, nine out of ten or raise their hands. And then we discuss, we deconstruct that experience for yeah, them so amazing. they can apply it to other things, you know. Yeah, in their, in I their love it. I life. think that's that's really hands-on training, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Ooh, yeah. that looks amazing. That looks really fascinating. The, every time I do a podcast at the end, we do a quick fire round. So I've got two questions. Yes. What book or podcast are you listening to right now and why? I'm not listening to any podcast <gasps> right now. Any books, anything, any articles you've read recently, anything yeah, that's I'm kind reading, of... Yeah, I'm reading a book called Ski Touring. <laughs> Ski touring, <laughs> are you? Oh, I love that. It's a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a book just on skills and techniques. <laughs> You're a bit of a nerd on, on all these I things, am a geek. aren't you? I, am I a can geek. tell. I'm a technical geek on that one, exactly. What one piece of advice would you give someone that is hesitant to pursue their dreams? Find a bigger dream. <laughs> okay. Makes sense, doesn't it, right? <laughs> I want to thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think it's been absolutely inspiring for anyone to hear your story. I know there's certain points I've had to really stop myself almost kind of showing emotion um, because I think your journey has just been fascinating. And to have that time with you today that we can impart that on those listeners that if they can take away something that gives them the courage to be able to go out there and reach their dreams, then our job is done. So Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having me on your podcast, Andrea. You have been listening to Talent Talk Asia podcast by The Career Establishment. To learn more about The Career Establishment, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at www.thecareerestablishment.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.